please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, and if you stand, I'll be reading verses 23 of 1 Corinthians 10 through chapter 11, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake, I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Please be seated. The Gospel Coalition recently published an article with the following title, Seven Things That Christians Can Learn from Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. And when I first read the title, I was sure that it was a Babylon Bee article, but I was stunned to find that the author was in complete earnest. Now, in case you haven't lived on the planet for the last year or so, or maybe couldn't care less about pop culture, Taylor Swift is a 30-something female icon of pop rock music, and all the cultural hoopla that comes along with one of the most successful music tours of the modern era. Now, here are several lessons that the Gospel Coalition writer thought we might be able to glean. One, that we were created to be seen and known. We, two, we were created to represent greatness. Three, the object of our affection may be more beautiful than we can imagine. The article was written by a man. Four, we were created for the reward of happiness with the object of our greatest affection, and it's just too painful to go on. All of those things related to Taylor Swift and Christ, and it just got really messy really fast. Now, it is true, and really what the article represents, I think, for us is that we are highly imitative people. We look for people to imitate, and we seek to find examples, things that we might, might pattern our own lives after. And We tend to pattern our lives after those we respect the most or who have had the greatest impact on us. Therefore, we must be careful to choose to imitate only those who are worthy of being followed. We need to recognize that our imitation, that which we desire to imitate, is driven by the things that we value. So we need to be careful that we value the right things so that we will only follow those who are pursuing those values. To this end, as Christians, we should value God's glory above all things and thus only imitate those who hold the pursuit of God's glory as their greatest goal. This pursuit is for our greatest good. It is man's highest goal that they should bring glory to God, but it is also his greatest need. Only in bringing glory to God can we find true satisfaction and can we truly fulfill the very purpose for which we were created. So what we'll see this morning is that the highest priority of every believer is to imitate Christ through obedience to the word of God and thus bring glory to God in their every motive, attitude, thought, word, and action. The highest priority of every believer is to imitate Christ through obedience to the word of God and thus bring glory to God in their every motive, attitude, thought, word, and action. The one goal of the believer is to glorify God through the imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we come to the end of Paul's long argument concerning idolatry, and it's really one command to flee idolatry. We've spent 20 sessions, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, now finishing out with chapter 11, verse 1, and this is vitally important for us. We live in a world, of course, that is full of idols, just like Corinth. There's no difference. As the, as the world has gone forward, it has always loved its idols. And so these lessons, I pray, have been for us a reminder of the need to, to run to Christ, that we do have to be very careful of the idolatry that is all around us. And beginning in chapter 8, Paul first urged the Corinthians to flee idolatry through the proper use of knowledge. He tells them, you know that there is only one God, but you aren't properly using that knowledge. You're saying there's one God and there's no other true deities, and yet you're going back to temples in which idols are worshipped and participating in that worship. 
You are misusing the knowledge that you have. And so if we're going to flee idolatry, we have to properly understand what the Bible says about the pursuit of our Savior and to be careful that we don't marry ourselves to the desires of the world and somehow then then, uh, really move away from the very purpose of honoring and pleasing Christ. We don't want to be idolaters as we are supposed to be fleeing from idolatry. So he says, flee idolatry through the proper use of knowledge, but also flee idolatry by not stumbling your brother. So do not do things which another Christian might see and be drawn towards idolatry themselves. So we must be very careful that we, as other people are imitating us, that they would not somehow be drawn towards a kind of idolatry that so we somehow think it's okay for us to do and yet would draw them away into being stumbled towards worshiping idols themselves. Paul goes on to say we need to flee idolatry by becoming slaves of all men. In chapter 9, he gives the example of his own life as an apostle, his giving up of the payment that he might have received and his, and his really giving his life as a slave to all men so that he might be able to see all that the Lord would have come to Christ. It's hard to, be, uh, it's hard to fall prey to the idolatry of men if you are instead serving all men, for the purpose of pleasing and honoring Christ, for the purpose of the message of Christ to go forward. Slaves do not make good idolaters in Christian terms. We are to be slaves then of all men. And then in chapter 10, he began to discuss the nature of the example of Israel and that we're to flee idolatry by taking a warning from Israel's example, that they, as those who who were led by the one true God, really ministered to and blessed by the Lord Jesus himself, the work of the Trinity in, in drawing them out of Egypt and safely through the Red Sea and then bringing them to Mount Sinai and giving them the law, the, the identification they had with God through Moses, yet they rejected those things and pursued idolatry and immorality, which really practically came out in, in grumbling and testing the Lord. They desired things other than what God desired to give them. They desired something else other than to imitate and, and follow the very God that, who was leading them. So the example of Israel was a serious one. Paul says, don't think that you, as God's chosen people, can somehow then continue to pursue idols and that God will not bring his discipline. So that was next at the, in the middle of chapter 10. He says, flee idolatry so that you do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. And he used the example of the Lord's Supper. You can't go out into the world and commune with the demons that are really being worshipped in the world's worship services, and then come back into the church and say, well, I'm going to commune with God too. Those things are mutually exclusive. Believers should never court the gods of this world and then also proclaim that they are loving and serving Christ. And believers do this. He is writing, remember, to a church of, of, that he considers to be largely true believers. Certainly there were some unbelievers whose lives are dominated by, really dedicated to idolatry. It's really only a believer that can choose, as it were, to step away or to to adulterate the worship of the true God by worshiping false gods, or at least by participating in that kind of worship. Only believers can actually do that because unbelievers can never truly worship God. Believers can and do, but unfortunately, they also can be involved in the kinds of worship which cause them to be communing with demonic forces. And Paul says, you must be in incredibly careful that you do not provoke the Lord to jealousy because you are not stronger than he. He will certainly bring his discipline. And this is a much needed correction in the, in the church today, that you may not live according to the idols of this world, but you may not live according to the behavior that those idols engender. You cannot bring that behavior into the church and say, well, we don't believe what the world believes, but we can live like the world lives. All along the way, Paul's been saying, it's not just about what you believe, it's how what you believe translates into how you live. That's what Christians do. And that's why the imitation of Christ becomes such a powerful example because Christ did not simply stay in heaven giving us directives as to what we ought to do. He came and lived upon the earth so we can imitate him. He is a model of living that we are to imitate, a practical life example given to us that is laid out for us in Scripture, in the Gospels, and then really is principalized for us. The principles of living like Christ are found in the rest of the New Testament, in the epistles. So we have not only teaching, we also have example, and this is how we are to flee from idolatry, believing properly, properly using our knowledge to then flesh out the behavior that imitates our Savior so that the world will recognize the futility of the idols that they worship. 
imagine if our lives look just like theirs, why would they want the God that we have? If they can get just the same things we have by pursuing their own gods, why would they pursue ours? Why would they pursue the one true God? Our lives would be different, transformed, absolutely set apart from the world. So the last thing we've been talking about then is the uh, fleeing idolatry in the conscientious exercise of our Christian freedom, that even in the freedoms that we have, we are to be careful that we don't draw others towards idolatry. And specifically, last week we were talking about being careful not to live in such a way that unbelievers might be hardened in their rampant idolatry. That if they know that we were somehow partaking of food that had been sacrificed to an idol, they might be hardened in their own consciences to continue to worship those idols by excusing it, saying, look, those Christians were doing what we were doing. They're eating the meat that we eat. They they seem to be affirming the same gods that we do. And so we have to be tremendously careful about how we live. Everything in our lives, the commands that we are given, and then even the freedom that we have, we pursue those in light of serving our God and of serving God others. Well, now, Paul will finalize his instructions on how to flee from idolatry by calling the Corinthians to become imitators of Christ. Really, he's going to move to the the very highest argument. There's only one way truly to flee idolatry, and that is to look like Jesus. Because, of course, nothing Jesus ever did or said could ever have been idolatry. He is the Son of God. And so, therefore, by imitating him, we will. If, if everything we did perfectly imitated Christ, we would never participate in idolatry. It would be impossible. And so that is the challenge that Paul will leave us with. He'll walk his way to that through these following thoughts from our text this morning. He says, do everything to the glory of God. Give no offense to anyone. Imitate Paul. He says, imitate me. And then he says, imitate Christ. He's working his way towards the highest call to flee from idolatry which is to imitate Christ. So first, in fleeing idolatry, we are to do, and really in imitating Christ, we are to do everything to the glory of God because that is what Jesus did. Our Savior did everything to glorify his Father. So in our text, he says, whatever then you do, or whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So in doing everything to the glory of God, he really begins with the things that he was talking about. He's been talking about eating and drinking in idol temples or eating and drinking food from the marketplace, uh, eating in, in the home of an unbeliever. So he says he was using a very specific example of meat sacrificed to idols, but now he really broadens it out. He says whether you eat or drink in, in any place, right? any kind of eating and drinking, that is some of the, the most fundamental things that we do to stay alive. We eat. We drink. We pursue those things which give us sustenance, which give us life. So even in the most basic elements of our living, we are to do that specifically to God's glory. There is nothing in the Christian life that is automatic. Nothing that we just go through, things that, things that we just go through the motions without thinking about how that can be done to glorify our Savior. Everything, including things like eating and drinking. And of course, Christians know this because when you sit down to eat, what do you do? You bless God. But that's not an accident. That's not some kind of family tradition. You bless God because you are seeking to eat to his glory. You want to honor him and please him, thanking him for what he has given you to eat, and then really eating in a way that would please and honor him, offering back up to him thanks by partaking of the good things that he has given and doing so in a manner which would bring him glory. Where you eat and drink matters. What you eat and drink matters. Who you eat and drink with matters. Everything about even your eating and drinking matters. And so if that matters, then certainly everything above that, all the other actions that you would perform, the things that are more complex or working your way towards more specific goals, certainly those things should bring glory to God. And I would ask you, when when you give that blessing for your meal, is that just by road? Is it just automatic? Do you then sit down delighting in the goodness of God? partaking of what he has given to you in ways which would please him? I mean, Paul has just, just said, be very careful. I mean, if you're sitting at an unbeliever's table and they say the meat was sacrificed to idols, you got to stop, right? You, you need not to pursue that. Don't continue eating. So even as you're eating, you don't just get caught up in what you're doing. You're always thinking about, does this bring glory to God? Are we honoring him and pleasing him as we sit with others? So around the dinner table, as it were, even in the conversation or the ways that you are pursuing that particular meal, are you seeking to please and honor the Lord? Everything that the Christian does is distinctive. 
If an unbeliever were to come into your home, even the way that you eat, how you are honoring the Lord in that, the kinds of focus that you have should be pleasing to him. So at the very basic level, whether you eat or drink, it should bring glory to God. Certainly it should not give opportunity for people to be idolaters. I mean, that's the primary point. In whatever you're eating and wherever you're eating, it had best not be somehow helping someone be an idolater. But he's broadening this out in any and every place, in any and every way, because the next thing that he says, so it's not only eating and drinking, then he just says, look, here's the issue. Whatever you do, right? So do whatever you do to the glory of God. And that's eating, drinking, living, breathing, playing, working. Everything is to be to the glory of God. This is what Christians do. So he extends the application far past eating and drinking in any context and now moves it out into any kind of action that you might undertake in your life. Everything is to be done with a view to that which will reflect the greatest honor and fear of God. For that's what it means to give God glory. That which will give the greatest opportunity for all to see the greatness of God's character and work, his power, his holiness, his love, his grace, and his mercy. In everything, we want God to receive the praise and not ourselves. So you're always considering, how will this action show that Christ is great? How will this action demonstrate the greatness of God the Father through the person and work of Christ? And you do this by being thankful. You, you do this by, by pursuing what you do with holiness. Really, the scriptures give us a, a variety of ways in which we bring glory to God. And so it's not just up to us. It's kind of a, a slogan we use now. We want to bring glory to God. But that has to be done scripturally. That has to be done according to the principles of the word of God. You can't just decide what it is that will bring God glory. Well, I think this brings God glory. Well, I'm glad you think that. But is that what the Bible says? Can you trace it to a biblical principle that says this brings glory to God? And if you can't, you need to be very careful of doing it. Remember, this is attitude, motive, word, action, right? not just the external parts of what you do, but the very motive for the reason that you do it. Colossians 3.17 says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you can't give glory to God if you aren't doing it in the name of Christ. That is reflecting properly Christ's character and nature, naming his name specifically as is appropriate. I'm doing this for Christ but living in a way that reflects the character of Christ. You can't do something to please God that Christ wouldn't do because Christ only receives, or God, the Father, only receives glory essentially through his Son. There's no other way. If you don't come through Jesus, naming the name of Jesus, living, living like Jesus, then you cannot bring glory to God. It doesn't matter what you are doing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then here's another aspect of giving glory to God. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. You cannot give glory to God when you are not giving thanks through Jesus for the things you are facing. And it says, whatever you do in word or deed, walking through a trial, the most difficult of things that might happen to you, we are to do that in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks through him. Sometimes this is easier for us to do in the bigger trials and issues than it is in the little things. We wrestle to be, you know, not to be angry, not to be frustrated, not to be discouraged. Again, the more I preach through this, this section of fleeing idolatry, the more idols are raised up in my own heart, things that draw me towards anger, toward me towards being disappointed and, and, and despairing when I have a God that I should be honoring and pleasing even in the midst of difficulty. Multiple times, even this week, I've had to go back to people. I'm, forgive me for my anger. Forgive me for those ways in which I did not reflect my Savior properly. Well, if we're going to give glory to God, it has to be through Christ, and it has to be with thanksgiving. That's what the people of Israel were not doing. They were not thanking God for his provision. They were testing him, trying the Lord, grumbling about their circumstances, and so not living in a way that was pleasing, not giving glory to God. When we give glory to God, we... We then do everything we do heartily. That is with a whole heart, mind, will, affections, conscience, directed towards the goal. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than for men. Young people, you do your schoolwork as unto the Lord. Your schoolwork is to glorify God. And the only way it properly glorifies him is when you do it with a whole heart. Fully engaged in what you are doing. Doing that to please and honor him. It's not half-hearted. It's not lackadaisical. It's not lazy. 
This is difficult because schoolwork is no fun. It's not a party. You don't sit down and go, woo, we're having the greatest time ever, you know, working out these logarithms. And yet it can be done heartily as unto the Lord. It's the way you are doing it. So the next time parents, your kids ask you, why do we have to do math? Because you need to learn how to glorify God. It's a great reason to do math because it doesn't come easily. All right? So whatever it is, pick the thing. It is to be done to glorify God. So we're going to teach you how to glorify God in doing this. Whatever you do. I mean, maybe the work you do is boring. I mean, just, you just do the same thing day in and day out. We are to glorify God by doing that heartily, with a whole heart, with all that we are. In any particular task that we might be given, that's a very practical way to glorify God. Whatever you do. And we do that for the Lord rather than for men. We're not looking to the reward that men will give us. If you're looking to men's reward, you are not glorifying God. If your primary purpose is to get the next promotion or, or to receive the, the boss's praise, if that's your primary goal, nothing wrong with getting promotions and nothing wrong with getting the boss's praise. I hope you get a lot of it. But the bottom line is that cannot be the thing that is driving you. That's not your highest motivation. That couldn't possibly be to the glory of God. Unbelievers can get that far. See, anything that you can do that an unbeliever could also do can't fully be giving glory to God because they can never give glory to God. You've got to go past that. You don't live at the level of those who don't know Christ. Don't move down to that level. That is simply that they don't honor and please him. They might, they might be more excellent in their work than you, but they're not doing it for the proper reasons. Do not imitate the world in the way that you work or in the way that you walk through trials or in anything that you do. If we're going to do something to the glory of God, we do it powerfully in the strength of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. He deserves this. That's why he demands it, because he is fully deserving of it. No other person is. I can't demand that you give me glory. You should run from the building if that were ever to be true. It is God alone who's worthy of the glory, and therefore he is the one who can demand it. We do it in his strength, says 1 Peter 4. That's in the context of, of working out our spiritual gifts, those very things, those very gifts we were given by the Holy Spirit so that we might accomplish the purposes of God in his church and in the world. We do that in his strength, which means we do it according to his word. We do it in prayer. We do it humbly. We do it yielded to his direction through the truths that he has given to us. And in that way, God is glorified when we do it through Christ in the power of the Spirit of God. And we do things publicly with the purpose of focusing on God. So the things that we do that others see, we direct them back towards God so that he receives the glory. Matthew five sixteen, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see the good works, see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You have to regularly point unbelievers back to the reason that you are doing things. Just being good, being nice, working hard, without actively pointing people back to the God that you are doing that for is not sufficient because you could be a Mormon, right? improperly directed to a God that doesn't even exist, working hard for the wrong reason. Wow, that's a hard worker. No, you need people to know that you are doing that, not for some false God, not to get your own promotions, not, not for any other reason than to please and honor the God of the universe. So he's going to have to be on your lips. He's going to have to be in your speech. He's going to have to be, it's going to have to be known that you are serving the one true God. You're not serving Allah. You're not some nice moral Muslim You are a true follower of Christ, serving and pleasing the God of the universe as described in his word through the person and work of Jesus. The gospel will need to be presented by you in the situations in which you are in order for the fullest glory of God to be received. See, this is entirely counter-cultural. Unbelievers design their lives around bringing glory to who? Themselves. They cannot do any differently. The entire life of the unbeliever is to bring glory to himself by accomplishing his dreams, fulfilling his purposes, actualizing his greatest potential, achieving his pleasure, reaching his goals, conquering his fears, overcoming his obstacles, throwing off his chains, expressing his true self, achieving his proper equilibrium, or any other of the numerous cliches that you find in Disney movies. Or every other movie. 
more these sophisticated movies. Oh, we don't, we don't you know, Disney movies. You keep, you keep saying that. You watch any movie that is driven by a worldly context, and it is nothing more, boils down to nothing more than follow your heart. That's it. Whether it's helping people in Africa, or whether it's just pursuing your pleasure in some foolish, ridiculous comedy, it is all about yourself and all about actualizing who you are. You can put all kinds of philosophical words around it, all kinds of deep drama that you know, seem to be so moving. And if it's not for Christ, it's just for you. That's it. There's nothing else. Now, believers, of course, design their lives around this whole truth. Our lives must be lived rigorously then according to the principles of the word of God, out of a passionate love for God. The word of God is the one standard you have for everything that you do. Love is the one motive you have for every action you perform. Every thought, word, motive, attitude, and action is to be conformed to a biblical standard as you pursue pleasing and honoring the God who died for you. In this way, you will be conformed to the image of Christ. You might be sitting this morning thinking, well, well, can I just be irritated, depressed, fearful, frustrated, angry, lustful, bigoted, condescending, deceitful, slanderous, hateful, bitter, unforgiving for just a minute? The answer is no. Not one moment. We wrestle. I wrestle as you in all of those ways. We must not say that we are more than we are, not, you know, that we would never wrestle with those things, but we must always admit that we must never settle into believing those things or to acting in those ways or to excusing those things. There's nothing more vile than a Christian who excuses being a bigot. The world calls us bigots and haters. They had best not be right because if they are, then we cement them in their unbelief and in their idolatry. If we truly are bigoted or unforgiving or slanderous or gossiping or hateful, we must not live in those ways. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. That's what a Christian does. That's what a Christian has the power to do. That's what a Christian delights to do. Every thought, which means then words, motives, actions, everything that flows from that. Now, you might be asking this morning, how do I give glory to God when I fail? Because can Christians fail? If I fail, am I done? I can no longer give glory to God. Well, thankfully, no. We can give glory to God even when we fail by repenting and asking for forgiveness. I think I quote this verse about every, about every other sermon because I need it so desperately. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh Lord, who could stand? I could not stand. You could not stand. If you just mark them down every day, my bitternesses and frustrations and discouragements and ways that I lash out towards others, sometimes even in my own mind that nobody else knows. If you would mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared you may be feared. When you ask for forgiveness, when you humble yourself, recognizing your sin, yes, you could be that evil. Yes, you could be bitter and angry in that way. Yes, you could lash out at your closest friends that way. You could and do accomplish that. We humble ourselves. And every act of forgiveness, every time God forgives us, every time we recognize the beauty of his forgiveness, we are to fear him more, to honor him and love him and respect him. And so he receives glory as you receive his forgiveness and as you ask for it through repentance. It's the beauty of being a believer. You can bring glory to God even when you fail. When you turn from that in humble repentance, taking hold of the forgiveness that God has given. So Paul says, flee idolatry, imitate Christ by doing everything to the glory of God. And next, fascinating, he says, give no offense. The way that you're going to flee idolatry is give no offense to anyone. Now this doesn't sound like good Christian teaching, and we're supposed to offend people for the gospel, right? We're people are supposed to recognize our stand and, and we're, we offend them with that truth. Well, that's true. We do. But we're not to offend them in any other way. Back to our text. Verse 32, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. The word there is a form of the word to stumble. Do not give any opportunity for stumbling to a Jew, a Greek, or to the church. What's an opportunity to stumble? Something that leads people towards sin. Do not in any way make it easy for other people to sin. Well, they sin. It's not my fault. 
You know, you, you, you get mad at someone. Who, I didn't make you mad. You, you got mad on your own. Well, yeah, you made it easy, right? You, you laid out the stumbling block. You put the stones out in the way so that I would come and trip over that. And you go, that's not my fault. You sinned. You stumbled. We do this. When you are offensive, when your character does not reflect the nature of Christ, you are making it easy for people to sin. Not only believers, but also unbelievers. That's the idea here. You may not do anything other than reflect the character of Christ because when you do, it makes it easy for other people to sin, and that's on you. Not their sin. I mean, they're the ones that sin. But the fact that you made it easy for them, the fact that you stumbled them, God holds you accountable for that stumbling block. He says, you may not give offense. Jesus gave no offense in this way. Certainly, he called Pharisees Hypocrites. Certainly he confronted people in their sin, but he never gave offense through doing anything that wasn't the perfect reflection of the character of God. That's what this means. No offense to anyone. First he says to Jews. That's fascinating. You will notice here that even after Christ died, was buried, and rose again, and the church was established, the New Testament authors clearly see a category of Jew. Right? God's chosen ethnic people. Those don't disappear into the church. It's like there are no Jews anymore because now the church has replaced the Jews. It has not. Jews come into the church or one people of God in that sense, but there are still Jews. God still sees his chosen ethnic people and he will see them through all of eternity. There will be a Jewish element or flavor to all all of eternity. This is what God promises. And and here is just a little picture of it. You can't give offense to Jews. Well, what would that mean? These, of course, would be unbelieving Jews because he also mentions the church of God. And during this dispensation, a Jew who is a believer is part of the church. So he says, don't give offense to Jews. Almost certainly this means, right, that you are to live in ways that an unbelieving Jew would not be offended. How would that be? Well, if you were to live in an immoral way, a way that condoned idolatry, a way that gave the impression that there was more than one God, this is Jews viewed in light of their heritage of having the one true God as the one who chooses them. doesn't mean they're all believers. It's talking about unbelievers here. But their heritage, and certainly in the context in which Paul is speaking, their heritage were those who were seeking to follow the one true God but had rejected the Messiah. So you stumble them by idolatry, You stumble them by condoning immorality and you give them opportunity to mock Christians who say they have the true Messiah to a Jew who says, no, the Messiah hasn't come. That's all fake. And when Christians live out foolish and immoral idolatry, Jews just go, see, that Messiah they claim is nothing. You cement them in their unbelief through your foolish idolatry or immorality. A Jew looks at that and goes, what's that? Why would I believe in your Messiah when you're like that? Why? Well, why wouldn't I be waiting for the one that's really coming? You got the fake one, and it's made clear by the fact that your lives are fake, right? That's how we might stumble or offend a Jew. How would we offend a Greek? Here, speaking of anyone not a Jew, all unbelievers who weren't Jews. So Jewish unbelievers are first given, don't offend them. Don't offend every other kind of unbeliever of every other nation, Right? Anyone that is not a Jew, that is an unbeliever, well, how would you offend them? Paul's already talked about that. That if, you somehow, if they were to somehow view, to view you as partaking of the same kinds of idolatry that they do, that you would harden them in their consciences towards their continuing in unbelief, continuing to pursue that idol worship. See, Jews are not, or Gentiles are in no way offended by immorality, And they're not offended in one sense by idolatry unless they know you're a Christian. And they know that you shouldn't be involved in idolatry, and then you are, and they're hardened to say, well, that's that's just a hypocrite. They're not running away from the gods that they say that I shouldn't even believe in. So I'm fine to continue on in my own idolatry. We're not to offend them in that way. No offense that would somehow cause them to turn away from Christ. And then no offense to the church of God. So no offense to Jewish unbelievers, no offense to uh, any other ethnic group, unbelievers of any other ethnic group, but then certainly no offense to believers. But again, you will notice, it's not just, well, it's not just about don't stumble your brothers, don't stumble other Christians, don't stumble unbelievers. 
I made that point in the text last week, that when you're sitting at the table of an unbeliever, you could stumble them. Well, it's just made clear here. And you're not allowed to. You are not giving glory to God. You are not honoring God when you are an offense to an unbeliever or to a believer. Well, how do we stumble other believers? By sinning and drawing them away to sin? By doing things that their consciences are not yet ready to handle, doing that in their presence and drawing them away? There's a variety of ways in which we could lead other believers to sin. Paul's already said, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Romans 14, 13, therefore let us not judge one another, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So we must be careful that in everything we do, we don't somehow make it easy for someone else to sin. That's believers and unbelievers. And that's the way Jesus lived. There was no one who could look at his life and say, Jesus, you made it easy for me to sin by your offensive behavior, by your refusal to follow and honor and love God. Jesus, you helped me to sin. That will come on no one's lips ever. Ever. Nothing Jesus ever did made it easy for you to sin. Everything that he did made it easy for you, paved the way for you to see the glory of God because that's why he lived. Now, I want to be careful here. People can take offense at things we do or offense at things that Jesus did because of their own foolish unbelief. I understand that. We're simply talking about the things that we know. That is our living out of the character of Christ. People may still be offended by you, but that's on them. That's not a true offense. If they can point to your behavior and say, that was sin, and so you made it easy for me to sin, that's on you. That's a stumbling block. But they can sometimes look at your behavior that you are living for the Lord and honoring him, and they will be offended by that. That's on them. You don't have to worry about that kind of offense. Nor do you have to worry about the offense that is standing up for the truth of biblical doctrine. And we'll see that in our next uh, heading. But nonetheless, to live in this way is a rigorous life that keeps everyone else's life in mind and giving no offense in any place that we might be. Paul says in Acts 24, 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. How are you doing? Blameless conscience? We ran around last night with 90 teenagers, you know, yanking people's flags and throwing flower bombs and tackling them, you know, in the the midst of stumps full of barbed wire. I mean, all kinds of things. How'd you do? My young people, could you stand here this morning and say, I made it, didn't make it easy for anyone to sin. I didn't help anyone sin in my behavior. And if you did, then you need to confess before the Lord and maybe you need to go talk to somebody this morning. Maybe you as a leader got angry at someone and you need to go and speak to them. We maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. We give no offense to Jews, to Greeks, or to the church of God. Well, then Paul says, oh, and, and then if you want to be like Christ, if you want to, or if you want to bring glory to God, imitate me. What? Paul says, imitate me. Do what I do. Imagine. As an apostle representing the, the, the person of Christ, Paul says, just as I also please all men. In all things. What's the opposite of offending men? Pleasing men. So it's not just, well, I didn't give any offense. I didn't do anything that made you sin, but I ignored you, right? I, I, I made sure I didn't get real close to you so that, you know, I wouldn't offend you. We do that in the church, you know. Well, sure, I won't sin against anybody in the church. I'll never see them. I'll sit next to them on Sunday morning. We all look happy and we shake hands and we smile and our families look great and we never get any closer than that. And so they wouldn't even know if I was a sinner. I can't lead you to sin if I never spend any time with you, right? So you've got lots of sin in your life. That's your tendency. I'll stay away from believers so that I won't stumble them. But, well, you're harming unbelievers. You're harming your own family. You can't escape from this kind of thing, right? So we're going to not offend. We're going to please all men. And Paul says, look, that's what I do, so just do what I do. I live my whole life not to offend, but on the flip side, to actively seek to please all men in all things. This is without exception. Every man, believers and unbelievers, in all things, in everything Paul did, he says, I'm doing everything possible to please men. He already said this in 1 Corinthians 9. How did he do it? To the weak, I become weak. To the strong, I become strong. To those without laws, without law. To those those, uh, under the laws, under the law. I'll do everything so that I might bring pleasure to other men. Now, what is that pleasure that he's talking about? He's talking about their being, they're seeing the winsomeness of Christ. 
Right? It's pleasing them by, one, not offending them, not by being foolish, not sinning against them, but conversely, by showing them the beauties of the gospel. Now, other men, they wouldn't say they're pleased by that. Right? All men aren't asking to be, well, show me the, the pleasures of Jesus, but that is how you please them. He says, look, I do everything to bring proper pleasure to men, that is to show them their desperate need, to show them what they truly need to be pursuing. We never needlessly offend the sensibilities of other Christians or unbelievers. We're not arrogant, abrasive, condescending, lazy, bitter, vindictive, unfair, unrighteous, unholy, uncompassionate, unyielding. The world may be all of those things, but they know that Christians are to be none of those things, and their, testi- and their consciences testify that those things are wrong. We're to be loving, gracious, kind, tender, compassionate, humble, truthful, forgiving, hardworking, loving, gentle, patient, long-suffering. Jesus was all of those things, and that's how we please other men, by acting like, looking like Jesus. But Paul says, here first, looking like me. So there's a human example that we can have. So you can't just say, well, only Jesus can do that. So yeah, I can imitate Jesus, but there's nobody else here that I could look at. A church should have multiple layers of maturity in which everyone below the level of maturity of someone else can look up to that person, seeing the way in which they follow Jesus and follow it. Because maturity is to look like Jesus. That's what Ephesians 4 says. To reach the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And there should be continual levels in the church so we're constantly looking upwards to people who look like Jesus. Don't make excuses. Well, you follow Jesus, but not me. Paul says exactly the opposite. You imitate me as I imitate Christ. And it is possible for human beings, human Christians, to imitate Christ, to look like him, to sound like him, to be motivated like him. It's not only possible, it's commended. And in any church where that isn't the case, the church is nothing but a country club. Well, we're all here, we're just all, we're all just wounded, and nobody can do anything right, and no, nobody can get things right. We had best be able to imitate Jesus by doing what is right and good and kind, even as we struggle with our sin. Of course we're wounded, of course we fail, and of course we fall short, but that's not how we live, that's not how we stay We repent, we pursue, we walk forward in honoring God, and at every level the church is pursuing this. Paul would be an apostle, the highest level if we may. We don't have apostles anymore. We have elders that are supposed to be able to be an example to all the flock. They are required to have the characteristics of Christ flowing through them in sufficient measure for them to be followed, for them to be examples. And if they are not that, they're not qualified. That's why you have qualified elders in a church. People are to be able to look at them and say, I will imitate them as I imitate Christ. And then leaders. Then all the way down through. Down to teenagers who are loving Jesus so that other teenagers can watch them. And young children can look up to their parents and see them walking with Jesus. Look to other young adults. That's why in our youth ministry, we don't just have, you know, we don't have parents. It's majority parent-driven because parents are welcomed and invited to be part of the youth ministry where their kids are. <laughs> People wonder, Chris, why are you still to youth ministry? I have kids in youth ministry. And so I do that. I'm with them because they are there. So why wouldn't I be? I'm not going to turn them over to some weirdo youth pastor. right? I'm going to go be there. And I get to be the youth pastor a lot of the time. And I let Rob do some of that because I'm really nice. So, okay, Rob, you get to do some. I get to do some. I'm a dad, so I'm going to do that. Hey, if you don't... Parents, if you're not showing up at youth stuff, shame on you. I'm sorry. You ought to be coming because you ought to be seeing. Take advantage of what we're doing. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to run through the dark and jump into the mud. All right? You could just stand and wait by the fire, and, oh, but you probably should be walking around seeing what we're doing. Show up on Wednesday nights. You can't come to everything. I get that. But you ought to know because we want our children to be drawn up. Yes, they see you at home, but fascinating parents, you don't see your kids at youth group. You don't see them when they're interacting with large groups of other people when you're not around. Well, if, you're in, if it's a large enough group, they know you're around, but they, don't, they forget that. And they're not running around, and they forget you're watching. And you're like, ooh, what was that? Why did you do that? You don't do that at home. Well, sure, because you're staring at me. But when you're not. So I think you get the idea everywhere that's true. And our elderly, we want to be, we want to, uh, yeah, as they're reaching levels of maturity at age 50 and 60 and 70, yes, I said elderly was 50, uh, you're working your way up that way, so that we're watching you walk with God and you're drawing us up. You need to be among us. You need to be with us 
so that we have the kind of example necessary so that we are able to please all men in all things, believers and unbelievers. He says, look, I don't seek my own profit. That's stunning. My life is not for my own gain. I don't do it just to get what I want. By the way, Christian hedonism there is, is kind of wiped out, which I just do everything because it pleases me. You know what? As, as, as Christians who live in this world, we have to set aside our desires. Yes, you should increasingly want to please God only, but no Christian ever wants to please God only. You have a sinful flesh that remains, so you've got to set it aside. You're not here to please yourself. It is fascinating that in one sense, even Christ didn't come to please himself. Romans 15, 3. Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What does it mean? Christ didn't do sinful things? No, what it means is, is that even Christ had a desire for his life not to be taken and nailed to a, his body, not to be nailed to a cross. He had a desire not to feel the wrath of his own father, righteous and good desires that he set aside for the greater good of those around him and to please his father ultimately. Jesus set aside his own desires, as it were, in order to bring glory to God by redeeming the people whom God had chosen. So we don't seek our own profit. But we seek what? The profit of the many. Everybody else. And specifically here, we pursue the salvation of the many. We do this. What's their greatest profit? That they would be saved. Because we want to see people walking with knowing and loving Jesus in every way. And so we do whatever it takes that we set aside our own benefit so that they will see the person and work of Christ. That's why we build a strong, deep church so that the world will look and say, what, what is that? In a world that is falling apart, can you imagine unbelievers coming amongst us and seeing the love and gentleness, the kindness, the truth, the proper forcefulness, the, the, the necessary pursuit of truth in a world that knows nothing of those things? Imagine if we're not strong and deep like that. We've got nothing to give to the world. We can't please them. We set aside our own desires by pouring out into one another so that our church is strong and deep, so that everywhere you are, people look and say, how can you live like that? Why is your marriage like that? Why do you parent like that? Why do you live for those things that I don't know how to live for? That's how we please other men. By doing everything necessary that they would see Christ and proclaiming the gospel to them in such a way that they would come to Christ. Now again, it doesn't mean the only thing we ever do is proclaim the gospel. I mean, if you were over in Israel today and there was a, a Hamas terrorist chasing an Israelite child, you wouldn't preach the gospel to the child or to the Hamas guy only. Hey, you need Jesus! <laughs> Wipes the kid out. You would grab the kid and save him and then you would preach the gospel through that action and as you did it. So I'm talking, we just walk around proclaiming the gospel. We do nothing else because there are times when it is necessary for us to pour out our lives in more physical ways so that we might be able to actually proclaim the truth of the gospel. But it's always with that as the goal, living out, living lives, so that they might be saved. Who? The many. All whom God has chosen. All who are his. And he has a multitude yet that he is going to bring in, and we are part of that. And then it all culminates with this. This is the most unfortunate chapter division in the Bible. Right? They're, they're, those chapter divisions are not biblical all right, this is clearly verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He finishes his whole argument against idolatry with that because as I said at the beginning, Jesus was never, could never be an idolater. So you can do everything he does, imitate everything Jesus says, and you will never commit idolatry if you were able to do that. Well, so Paul goes, he moves past himself, of course, and he points towards Christ because here in, in every place he says, Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Well, what specifically does he mean here? Well, Jesus did everything. So in this context, to imitate Christ is what? Well, Jesus did everything for the glory of God. Paul says here, you do everything for the glory of God. Well, that's what your Savior did. What did Jesus say? John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus lived for one thing, to glorify his Father. So we live for one thing, to glorify the Father. Christ gave no unnecessary offense to any 
men. Do not use Jesus for your bigoted approaches to things or that you can somehow be mean and abrasive and harsh. Wait, he talked down the Pharisees so I can flame people on my Twitter account. No, you can't. You may not be abrasive. You may not be foolish. You may not be harsh. You may not be unforgiving. Jesus was none of those things. And so he did everything giving no offense. Matthew, 20, Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Don't point to Jesus as your poster boy for giving offense. He never gave unnecessary offense to anyone, and he never gave offense by sinning, and that's how we primarily give offense. Third, Christ sought to please all men. I just read you Romans 15, 3. Even Christ did not please himself. What did he do? He did everything so that all men would come to know him. All whom the Father had given him, he did what he did so that they would all come. And he died and was buried and rose again so that that would be the case. Number four, Christ sought the prophet of the many. Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, not his own prophet to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why you're here. You are here to pour out your life as a drink offering, as your Savior did, receiving all of your benefit from pointing others to the one who can save them to the glory of God because that's the last thing we imitate Christ and that Christ came to save. Have you forgotten that? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what we're doing now. He will come to judge the world. I understand that. But you may not stand in Christ's stead now and bring your casting judgments upon the world and say, well, I'm just being like Jesus. He's coming. He'll do that. You now give no offense. Please all men. Be slaves to all men. Give of your life for the profit of others and not yourself. Do all of this that all might be one that God would have, that the church would not be stumbled or led to sin, that we would be deepening in maturity so that we would reflect our Savior and the sweetness of Jesus so that God the Father would receive all of the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. I want to thank you for the privilege of being together this morning, for having this reminder that our, our one goal is to imitate Jesus. Or thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us your Son for writing about him, for enabling us to see what he did, to hear what he said, to, to know his heart and to know the characteristics of Christ that we might glorify you, Father. Help us to do this as a church. Help us to do this as individuals. And in doing so, might we flee the idolatry of the world and run to the glorification of God. In your precious name.